0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to 33 Voices. I don't need to remind anyone listening to this that without superb talent, no business exists, no business thrives. Without an inspired and inviting workplace environment or culture, like we like to call it, that talent certainly stagnates. And Few understand what it takes to attract and retain world-class talent than Daniel Coyle. Not only has he written two of the most influential books on the topics, The Talent Code and The Cultural Code, I think the most important thing that separates him is that he lives it every day with the work that he does. So I'm thrilled to have you back, Daniel. Great to be with you.
1: Great to be with you, Mo. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, culture has been at the intersection of your entire body of work since I have known you. Mm. and. Obviously, the past few years have forced us to look a little closer at this thing we call workplace culture. But other than that, Dan, what was the most significant update that you had to make to your own culture playbook as a result of this assignment that you undertook? Because you've been living this with the people you're working with for the decade or so that I've known you.
1: Yeah, no, it's, it's so funny, right? I've been in this, in this sort of domain for a long time. And when I set out to write this book, you know, it's the idea, the title, Culture Playbook, right? So the idea was to take some of these ideas around culture and just kind of cut to the chase, like, right, just give me the recipe. What should I do? Give a list of actions that people can take to make their culture stronger. And those actions are, of course, borrowed from the best cultures in the world. And so I thought this would be like I made the same mistake I make with every book. This will be simple, right? It's sort of like, how how hard can it be? I've been collecting these actions for a long time. I'll just list them and describe them and I'll be done. And as I I did that, and as the world went through this extraordinary moment that we're living through with obviously COVID, but with sort of social justice issues and with hybrid- A whole bunch of things. Technology and society and polarization, all of these things, these changes in our landscape- it really made it clear to me that, you know, it, it the book that I had was trying to write wasn't the right one. That the book that I needed to write was something that was more of a conversation, something that was more that gave people an opportunity to do something that they're not able to do often, which is to pause and to reflect and to sort of pull back and think. So as a result, the book is less of a cookbook and way more of a workbook or a workshop, you might say where it's a series of sort of thoughts and exercises. And that to me was the overarching surprise. Like like uh, you would sort of think, well, there's just a series of best practices around culture that would, will work for everyone. And that's a little bit true, but the deeper truth is that you know culture is complex and, and everything you do, there's a, there's a really great distinction between things that are complicated and complex. Is that something that you've heard about before, Mo, or should I? Absolutely. It, yeah, you know? please
0: I mean, dive in. I mean,
1: it's like, you know, some problems in the world are complicated. That means there is an answer. There is a cause and effect, right? I can give you the instructions to build a Ferrari engine. And if you follow them exactly, you will build a Ferrari engine. There is a one pathway. X leads to B, leads to A, to D, to B, and then you can build it. Other problems are not that way. Other problems change and morph and change you. And that's a problem like raising a child. Like I can't give you an instruction manual for doing that because everything you do, the child will change and you will change and the whole system will change. So that uh, raising a child is complex and there's no linear cause and effect. There's, there's just sort of this process of, of experience and reflection and experience and reflection, trying things and seeing what happens and moving in a direction and seeing patterns. And so that's the distinction that I think is captured in this in this book. A cookbook would be saying, look, culture is just merely complicated. Here's how to build your Ferrari engine. That's mm. not actually how it is. You know, if you wanna build a culture, you have to get into this complex space where you are going to try some stuff, it's going to surprise you, you're going to notice some things, and then you're going to get a little bit smarter, and then you'll try some other stuff. And and this book is meant to be kind of an experiment kit, right? Uh, Here's a bunch of good experiments to do, 60 of them, that are taken from the best cultures on the planet, things that work for them that can be adapted for you. And then there's all these other questions that I sort of getting people to reflect on what makes their culture strong what makes their culture weak what should they work on so that was a surprise it was just how conversational i think this this space is and how much it demands the skill set that kind of ironically it's something that the world doesn't leave us time for you know our world is more filled with action than ever Right, the world just just getting through your to do list and these workflows and ticking off the next thing to do and the next thing you do and you go to the next project and really carving out time to like press pause and zoom out and say what really matters here, where where are we going, how are we getting energy, how are we getting good information, all of those kind of super basic questions. That's where it's at, right? Is this you know pausing like is productivity. I guess is a way to say it. And, and that was something that I think I really learned deeply as a process of writing this book. So in your own reflections over the past
0: couple of years, obviously the work that you are doing and have done with leaders and organizations and sports teams didn't stop. I mean, it didn't come to a complete halt. So in right. your own reflections and then your experiences with working or observing those leaders, what yeah. was it that you started to see happen that perhaps wasn't as clear with the talent code or the culture yeah.
1: code? Yeah, totally. I saw an elite level of experimentation. An elite level of sort of people saying, look, we can't be together because of COVID, but let's create a forum where we invite leaders from other organizations that are like ours and let's bring in a speaker every lunchtime and let's see what happens there. Let's do that experiment, right? Let's do this other experiment, trying things. There's a company I just heard about that, um, you know, it's completely virtual company, but they're doing this experiment where they're getting together about every eight weeks in an exotic locale and spending half their time kind of having fun together and half of their time getting work done. And the rest of the time they work virtually. Is it, is it the answer for everyone? No. Is it a really interesting experiment? Will they learn from that and continue to adapt it to their context and their people and their challenges? Yeah. So that I saw that. The other thing I saw was kind of elite communication. People, when we are communicating virtually, it is really hard to create the kind of attention, energy, chemistry that you can in real life. And so the good leaders I saw, saw that obstacle right away and saw and tried different things to get around it. And when people were not speaking up in a meeting, they're the ones who say, Hey, we haven't heard from Mo yet. Like Mo, what's going on in your brain? Tell us, you know, really curious. And that, that curiosity and that, that entrepreneurial kind of energy to connect and to, f- to make sure voices are being heard, saw that definitely sort of elite levels of, of communication and of experimentation. And the other thing I saw was real frustration. The, the more you are powered by culture, the more frustrating it is to, to deal with all of the constraints that we had to deal with. And, and beyond that, I guess, and it sort of started to play out in the last few months, I saw a sort of faith that, you know, when we get back together, and even if we can only be together two or three days a week, there was kind of a, they kind of shared a hopefulness about that. Maybe that's common with a lot of leaders that they tend to be kind of hopeful, optimistic people, but in the organizations that I've visited and looked at since the sort of shackles of COVID had started to come off And they've done these experiments with maybe they're together two days a week, maybe they're together three days a week, Uh, maybe they're doing like that guy and getting together every six weeks. There really is kind of a a fun and a juice and an energy in in that physical togetherness that is that seems to be playing out. There were some people at the start of this, right before this time, they were saying, you know, work is irretrievably broken. People will never come back to the office. I think that's wrong. I think I think there is. There are opportunities that the office gives that, that real life staying home with your dog does not give you when it comes to learning and growth and apprenticeship and advancement. And it really is captured by that word growth, I think. And people who are interested in growth are interested in, in doing that, you know spending physical time together, learning from each other.
0: And what is it going to take for that to be operationalized? What is it going to take for that to have some permanent element, continual experimentation and superb communication? That's inviting to me.
1: Yeah, no, and I think some of the most interesting experiments around kind of normalizing new types of interacting. And and one area where I've seen that is in normalizing the conversation around mental health. When somebody sprains their ankle that you work with, you see that mental health is no different and that idea which is moving through our society now where that is that is becoming normalized there are some leaders at genentech who filmed videos of themselves talking about their own mental health challenges they put it under a hashtag let's talk and are kind of normalizing people sharing that but that's new that's really interesting that provides a depth and a shared vulnerability that maybe did not exist, and maybe even a type of supportiveness that is new in this world. Another sort of experiment in this area that I've seen that I think is kind of exciting is an anxiety party. So when you get together with a small group of people you work with, not your bosses, just kind of your peers, and each of you shares three or four things that you're most worried about. Maybe it's a presentation that's coming up. Maybe it's a relationship with a boss or something like that. Maybe it's a performance review, whatever it is. And you share that, and then the group rates your anxiety on a scale of one to five. One is don't worry about it. Five is, yeah, you should give that some real thought. Yeah, it's worth being worried about. And then they brainstorm on ways to help the stuff that is worth worrying about. And it's like this ventilation process where people can kind of safely share the stuff that is, you know, the friction that they're carrying around, the the rocks in their backpack that they've been carrying around. So that's interesting too. So despite and maybe because of this new hybrid virtual landscape that we're operating in, there are these really interesting experiments that I think will make it better. All that said, like I, I've yet to see I don't think it's possible to have a like a real deep relationship virtually. Like I, I don't think it's mm. I think there's it's possible sure. to do some work. It's harder to do creative work. So I think it all speaks to the level of intentionality and and awareness that is going that are going to be really key skills going forward as we really need to pause regularly and think, what is this meeting for? And, and where is this headed? And do we need to, can we get rid of this? Can we, what do we really need here? Who else needs to be part of this conversation? That that ability to zoom out and see the landscape and approach it with intentionality is, is going to be like a superpower, I think, in the coming years.
0: So let's let's jump to tip sixty. You end the book with building a model of excellence or greatness, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it. If you were starting a company tomorrow, mm-hmm. how would you approach designing and living a world class culture?
1: I guess the word there would be a few sort of pillars toward. Just finding that right, you've got to see these certain functions. There's certain behaviors, certain actions. If you x ray every good culture on the planet, they've got these certain things in common, and I call them safety, vulnerability, and purpose. You know, there's the safety is the connection function, every good group stays connected, and we do that through safety. Vulnerability is kind of like the brain function, the information function. How do you get good information to flow and nobody hides it and everybody sees clearly what's going on? Well, you do that by sharing vulnerability, by being transparent about what you don't know and what you need to learn and where you screwed up and where they screwed up. And then you need a directional function, like you need to have a compass. Uh, and we do that by establishing purpose. So you need to like cover those buckets. But beyond that, I think you would have to have a, a real commitment to co-creation. I think to me that that's huge about the culture, a real commitment to experimentation. I think that's at the, that's at the core of it where you're going to say, well, we might not get this stuff right. The first time, right. We might not get it right in year five. And I think a deep commitment to kind of figuring out, you know, kind of co-creating meaning, you know, story is the, it's the most powerful drug on the planet. And, it's taking time to like figure out continually pausing to figure out what's our story here. You know, what, what resonates with us. I was just at a, at a big tech company and they broke up into small groups and there was this one kind of microculture that was building, you know, what you'd call a mantra map, you know, just these series of short sayings that capture kind of who they are, the problems they face, what looks, what great looks like, what terrible looks like. And one of the ones that they came up with was uh, do Epic shit. It's like, it's stupid, (laughs) right? It's on the face of it. I love it though. It's great. It's like, that's what makes it great. It is clear that language resonated with that group. They had all kinds of stories attached to that, what Epic was and what Epic meant and people who had done that. And so there was this kind of rich culture of meaning. This rich, like little ecosystem of meaning around that. And to me, that's, that's huge. And I guess the other principle I would have if I had the, you know, the model of excellence would be, you got to help people flourish. Like at some level, it's not about work, right? At some deep level, nobody stands up at a eulogy and talks about what a great worker somebody was. Nobody puts on their gravestone, you know, how great performance reviews they had. And yet we spend all our time kind of, kind of walking that and so whatever culture it would be i think it would be you'd have to have something that really included the whole person the whole family the whole community and this idea of kind of joy and well-being being more important than work and i think surfacing that conversation you know about that hey at the end of the day you know this is part of life it's not all of life
0: but that last point that you made That is probably the one area that is not only most neglected, but sometimes just completely forgotten, this whole notion of well-being or getting people to flourish. And certainly, the last couple of years have forced us to at least talk about it, whether we live it in the future or not. That's a whole different conversation.
1: I know. And I, I think smart leaders and smart groups are starting to think about it. You can almost envision a world where like, sabbaticals become more of a regular thing right? And, and you get the opportunity to go off and learn and, and get better. And this this kind of grinder mentality that a lot of us grew up in. And a lot of us, there's a lot of us that you know are absolutely addicted to it. I think there's a new generation coming along that's going to have a lot to teach us. The people who say, well, I can't, come in over the weekend because I have a kickball game like back in my generation you could not say that right of course
0: you couldn't say it Not
1: say that and now I think we're getting to a spot where when somebody says that we say good for you you know like that's probably a smart move for for you and how do we balance and navigate that tension I think and I think seeing it not as a negative and not as a positive, but, but as a, a healthy tension, all progress comes from tension. And so I, I think there's some really interesting ones that this will be able to explore in the next few years that'll make us better.
0: You, you mentioned co-creation, and I'm a huge advocate of just the whole notion of not only co-designing culture, but almost co-designing everything for that matter. So assume you have a team of seven, eight, 10 people. And, and you're in that initial stages of developing this model of excellence, and you're sitting around in a, in a room, right? An open office talking about, hey, let's talk about our culture. Walk me through what you might be talking about in the initial stages of shaping this model.
1: Yeah, I think you have to kind of start, I mean, to quote Mr. Sinek, I, I think you really got to start with the why, right? Like, wh- what, are we, what are we here to do? What's, what's our... What's our goal? What are we trying to, what are we trying to create? And I went through this recently with the, the Cleveland Guardians baseball team, which, you know, is, is one of the smallest markets in the sport. I do a little consulting for them and we're talking about the purpose, just redefining the purpose, kind of refreshing the purpose. And I think where we landed was to unite and inspire our city with the power of team. And just the process of coming up with that sentence ended up creating this larger conversation. Is that the perfect sentence? Nah, there is no perfect one. But unite, inspire, city, power of team. There's something there that you can kind of navigate to. There's something attractive there. And, and in spending time kind of building that mantra map, building out what True North is, language is powerful. And it's the one thing in culture that scales like relationships don't scale right you can have you can be have you know people that work for facebook don't know or trust really mark zuckerberg right they, they do not have a relationship with him but in the small group in which they work they do have relationships so but the one thing that is powerful that that you can sort of do one of the most powerful things you can do as a group is get together and and and, and use language to Build the landscape of meaning in which you're going to be operating, and and decide what is your inspiring, United our city with the power of team. And the process of doing that ends up kind of creating all sorts of good energy that you can you can use, and that ends up driving the group. Once you have that sort of why, and then it's about you know building building those relationships and doing the hard work. And one of the core things that I think sets great cultures apart is the way they respond to problems. There's a, there's a moment when a problem occurs in a culture and it, it's a reflex and people either turn toward it together or they turn away from it. And they're a little afraid of it. And I think great cultures and, and strong leaders master this art of when there is turbulence, friction, a problem, they turn toward it with attention and almost with love. It seems kind of weird, but they kind of like are excited by Oh, there's there's this thing we can solve together. There's this issue, and it's not something to ignore or be afraid of. And there's a feeling that that they, in turning toward them and in realizing that the tensions uh, are really the things that make them, you know, that are worth exploring, that make them special. This idea of solving hard problems with people you admire, this feeling, like you don't get it that much in life. It's a pretty special feeling. Anybody who's ever been on a, on a really good team knows that feeling of. Hey, this is a really hard problem. I really like these people I'm shoulder to shoulder with around it. And we're making a little bit of progress here. Like that's a really cool feeling. And that feeling is kind of at the center of most good cultures. In fact, when people leave good cultures, you'll find that they often loop back. Like some people who would leave Pixar would kind of loop back to it. Or people who've left the Guardians actually have kind of looped back. And people who've left Uh, The Navy SEALs have moved back because, and when you ask them, you know, how come you came back? It's really a hard life. You work hard. And they will say, it's just like a feeling you get here. And I I think that's what they're talking about. Like that. We're going to put the proud, we're not going to run from it. We're going to turn toward it and we're going to work on it together.
0: Well, I can't imagine too many baseball teams that really sit there and go through what's our purpose, right? The the one that you probably hear is to, to win a championship. And certainly, purpose isn't anything new, yet it's still, again, one of those elusive things that if you go to any size company and talk about it, you're likely to hear as much silence as you are, you know, here's what we stand for. Do you have a sense, Dan, of some of these organizations that you've observed or work with, what is the difference when you walk into an organization that does have a purpose and is living it and one that maybe just gives lip service to it?
1: Yeah, it's a moving target. you know there's times even with high purpose groups where they're they're losing it. there's times even with low purpose groups where they've got it. but you sense a clarity in the way people think and move like, there's sort of a, an experiment to do with places. Like if you flew down from Mars and just observed, you didn't understand the language, but you just observed the Navy Seals for a while, or you just observed Pixar for a while, or you just observed the San Antonio Spurs for a while, like what would you, you would pick up something, right? There was a, there's a famous football coach at, when he was at Oregon, he wanted to be famous to for being, running the fastest, best organized practice. And his rule was, we're gonna have somebody walk up and within one minute, they should be able to tell us what what we're about. Like they should be able to sense what we're about. And I think that's what you get. It's sort of is, it's it's present in what people are focused on and in what they're moving toward and what they're excited about. And that's where, I, I think that's where you sort of sense that purpose. And there's never, the other thing I'd say about purpose, I guess, is that there's never just one. Like, like there's all kinds. Every, every group is really made up of a bunch of little microcultures. And each of them has their own, like the do epic shit people. Like, you'd feel that when you're with them. But there may be some other people whose purpose is to make the world like 1% better every day. They're not doing epic shit. They're doing incremental shit. So it's like, you would sense that when you're with them, because they'd be really detail-oriented, they'd be celebrating and exciting, there'd be like these bursts of emotion around certain types of progress, so that's where you sense it, and, and when we think about, like, think about the best school you've ever been around, like, what do the teachers get excited about, what gets their attention, what do the kids get excited about, and, and that's what, where, where you can kind of sense the progress.
0: You mentioned Popovich and the Spurs, and I've just always had huge admirations for him and just his style. What do you remember from observing them? Like When you walk into their their practices, to their games, to their huddles, what is it that you're seeing on the inside that maybe we're missing on the
1: outside? Yeah, no, it's funny. I got there on the day after they had lost a big game. And so it was kind of a perfect day to get there. And Pop went right over to the player who had missed the big shot and he put his hand on the player's shoulder and he kind of like wrestled with him a little bit. And then they started talking about, not about the game, but about the dinner that Popovich had arranged for that player the night before and about Hmm. the bottle of wine that Popovich had ordered. Like that's different, right? And then they go to watch film and they don't show game film. He started showing a CNN documentary on the history of the Civil Rights Act. And then he started asking questions about it. Like, what do you guys think about that? So huge difference right he's in the film room but they're they're doing something that no other coach is doing
0: right Um, and you reference that that was i mean you're talking about a game they lost that was in the the finals
1: yeah yes exactly exactly they lose the most heartbreaking loss ever a time when everybody just wants to go home and despair and his response is team everybody together let's go to the restaurant let's have a meal let's laugh let's have some wine let's be together And he like overcame his own emotions, his own sadness to bring that team together. And it's this like relentless connectivity is what you see when you're with him. Relentless. He's entrepreneurial in looking for ways to connect the team. And another crazy example was the night before the 2015 NBA finals, they're playing the Miami Heat, the game's coming up. And. Pop starts talking about Eddie Mabo Day, which is a holiday for indigenous Australians named after a settler who sued the Australian government, indigenous settler who sued the Australian government for his land and won. So Eddie Mabo Day, they have an indigenous Australian player on the team, a guy named Patty Mills. So Patty Mills is sitting there. They're about to play in the NBA finals, right, the next day. And Pop is talking about this holiday that no one's ever heard of except for him. And Patty Mills gets tears in his eyes because he sees what Papa's doing. He's finding this point of connection and he's, he's pressing pause and he's curious and entrepreneurially enough to use this as, as a place of connecting the team. And pretty soon everybody knows about this and is talking to Patty Mills about it. it turns out Patty Mills is related to Eddie Maybo. So it's, that's what people don't see. Um, it's him doing, they're not hard things. They're simple things. But they require this curiosity and this, you know, there's a lot of coaches that are really smart. There's a lot of coaches that are really organized. There's a lot of coaches that know a lot about basketball, but there's almost no coach that would stop his pregame speech before the finals to make that entrepreneurial connective moment between his team. That's what sets him apart.
0: Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter if they lost the game or won the game, right? It seems to me that certainly emotions aside, he is just steadfast in who he is and how he's going to lead.
1: Yeah, I think so. He gets, more, he gets more worried and upset when they win, actually, because he can see, and, and this is true for any culture, success is actually kind of a culture killer. It can be, right? Because it, it stiffens up the, the, the possibilities. You get anchored on certain ways of doing things, maybe certain lazy habits, Or success is a bad teacher. It's a a crappy teacher. And so he's super aware of that and will often be harder on his team after a win where he feels like they might have coasted or gotten into some bad habits than after a loss where they have done everything they could.
0: Well, and he seems to be one of those who gets this whole idea of diversity and inclusion. And for whatever reason, I don't understand why it just remains this big topic there's certain things that are taboo that you talk about and there are certain things that aren't taboo that you talk about and at the end of the day we're all human beings but people like him really just embedded in not only their style but who they are and live it what can we just about this specific big elephant in the room dan mm. how do we learn how to be better with this issue just by observing him
1: yeah, I think the thing that he brings is a deep appreciation for the fact that a more diverse room is a smarter room. That's one thing he really realizes. This idea, you know, there's a word that happened that is used a lot in the wider world, which is culture fit, right? It is that guy's a good culture fit, right? That actually, do we is all use good, it? <laughs> we all use it, right? We all use it as kind of a compliment, right? But. Popovich makes you stop and realize that's not a great word. A better term is culture contributor, culture contribution. Who is a who is going to contribute to our culture? Who's going to bring something new? Who's going to bring a new perspective that'll let us see ourselves? That's immensely valuable. Not just, you know, if you pursue culture fits, you end up with a monoculture, which is the most lopsided, dangerous, dumb culture you can possibly have. So, I think that's one of the things that, that he he lives viscerally. And it it comes out of, he's had this incredibly worldly life. It comes out of his appreciation for food and wine and travel and the international world and politics. And he really sees that and feels that as a strength. It's the opposite of lip service. It's like, he can't help it. And I think there is really something to learn from there. And the other thing to learn from there is, that like diversity and inclusion are just the first steps right, the, the analogy that I've heard and that I, I think I use in the book is diversity is when you're invited to the dance inclusion is when you're asked to dance and belonging is where you love dancing. Yeah, I love that. And this idea that, oh, now we're diverse. Oh, now we're including is not enough. If you're going to create a good culture and create that voice and that safety and that sense of direction, that sense of belonging, having the dance be fun. And I think that's where Popovich excels is in in looking for opportunities to make that fun and bringing people in in a way that is really fun. Well,
0: you look at somebody like that, right? And then you look at what the NFL's been going through for the last couple of months, obviously, for for, for the yeah. past couple of decades, all right? Night and right. day. They just can't seem to get it right.
1: I know. They can't. They can't. And and there's all kinds of all kinds of fascinating reasons for that. But yeah, they're a perfect counterexample, aren't they?
0: One of the things when I was reading your tip about fallibility, and you were talking about Dave Cooper, I think, and Ed Catmull at Pixar, and I was reminded of somebody who I had a working relationship with who just seemed to be the exact opposite, is an individual who always had the right answers for everything, right? That he yeah. they were the best at everything, yet you have... You know, this Navy SEAL who's world class at what he does. And then you have Ed and his team at Pixar who kind of thrived by telling you, hey, I screwed that up or I screwed this up. What can you learn from that? Obviously, the Pixar culture is world renowned.
1: Yeah, no, they are. And they're because they're alert. Like every good culture, the only real asset you have is your ability to learn fast. And all learning happens. When somebody reveals what they don't know, right? And yet, in most business atmospheres, in most business environments, we want to protect reputation. We want to we want to not take risk. We want to we want to conceal what we don't know. And so, good cultures find ways to turn that on its head. And the main way is by leader signaling fallibility, doing it first. You know, as Dave Cooper says, you know, the, the four most important words a leader can say are "I screwed that up," because it gives permission for other people to say the same. And so that idea, you know, we often think of that kind of vulnerability through a moral lens like oh what a what a humble nice person ed catmull is and what a humble nice person dave cooper is. Okay, yeah, it's humble and nice. It's also really smart. Right? Because you are creating in that vulnerability loop is what it's called, the possibility of seeing more clearly. Vulnerability creates brains. Like, that's the thing. We think of it in terms of our hearts, right? But actual vulnerability creates a group brain because you get a shared vision by me knowing that you don't know that, or by me knowing that you want to learn that, and by us being transparent with each other about where we're really at. You know, when we walk away from a project and we say, you know what, that was pretty bad, wasn't it? (laughs) And, And you say, yeah, that was pretty bad. And we talk about why it was bad, we get smarter. When we walk away from a project and say, Well, that went well, and it really didn't, we both get dumber. So they are they're really, really good because they realize that that vulnerability is the way you get smarter.
0: I was having a conversation with Marcus Buckingham the other day, and we were talking about the simplicity and complexity of that magic phrase that you talk about, you know, in addition to I screwed that up to. You can tell a lot about a leader listening when he or she says those three words, Tell me more. Yeah. And again, it's so easy, Daniel, but yet for whatever reason, they need people like you to remind them why.
1: It's kind of crazy. It's kind of crazy. Well, I think we're status oriented beings. We just are, right? We really, when we go get thrown into a group, the, we have a huge part of our brain that is assessed with answering the question, like, where do I fit in? Like, who's in charge here? Am I going to get in trouble? And we can't help it. Like, we've evolved through millions of years, and being ostracized from a group meant death. So, so this brain part of ours that is, that is worried to death about are we in or are we out uh, makes a lot of sense to have. It was very useful for much of our evolution. But right now, it leads us to hide our ignorance and protect our status. And so that's why these reminders are so useful. And that's as simple as they are. Like just saying, tell me more is such an easy thing to say. And that kind of unlocks the larger secret of a lot of these behaviors and tips. You know, it's, they make life easier. It's actually way hard. It's very difficult to go through the world acting like your friend who has all the answers. Right? Or even trying to have all the answers is really exhausting Mm. and protecting your reputation in situations where your status might be threatened. And it is really, really liberating and relieving to say, you know, I really don't need to provide the answer. I just need to be kind of a learner in the moment. I just need to sort of show what I don't know. And that's why there is this kind of, it contributes to the vibe you sense around, around culture, because around good cultures because people are actually relaxed and can be themselves and don't have to front. They can say, you come to me with a problem, I, I, I probably won't be able to solve it. Like, I'll tell you what, but maybe we can solve it together if you tell me more about it and then we maybe bring in some other people and knock it around and maybe we'll, maybe we'll get somewhere. But this idea that I alone can solve it or I'm gonna, I'm gonna have the answer in my back pocket for you in five seconds, That's that's the world we live in is way too complex for that to be real or for that to be, you know, even even possible. So acknowledge the way the world is, let go of that stuff, and it it gets easier.
0: Do you think that maybe some of these leaders that that you've mentioned that we've talked about, Ed, Dave, Popovich, and some of the others and what is are they just much more self-aware, or is it a level of confidence that just it almost kind of when you're observing them, you kind of—it's almost effortless what mm-hmm. they're doing. Yeah. What do you think? Is that—is it a self-awareness or what is it?
1: Yeah, I think it's all those things. I think they are—they are confident. They obviously have a, a track record,ing and it's harder for someone without the obvious status they have to sort of say, "Hey, I'm an idiot. You know, help me learn this." Um, but it is, it is on a deeper level, it is self-awareness. There's a phrase that Cooper uses called a backbone of humility. And I like that phrase because we usually think of humility as something that's kind of soft, mm. but it's actually not. It actually takes a certain amount of, of strength and self-awareness to say, I don't know. I, I don't have a clue about that. Like, Who, should, who else should we talk to? And, and that kind of, if the self-awareness exists, it, it exists along the lines that you hear a lot of very wise people say, the older I get, the less I realize I know, mm. right? That is a very, very common phrase and very, very common sentiment and very, very common experience of, of very smart people going through life. And I think these leaders have that same awareness where the scope gets bigger, the possibilities get bigger, their own ego gets a little smaller. And, and they realize, hey, the best thing I can do here, the most effective thing I can do here is kind of get a little small and, and not pretend. And does that come out of confidence or self-awareness or some combination of both? Yeah, I'd say it's probably both.
0: Hmm, fascinating. All right, two more quick things for you, and I'll let you go. I have been using... The after action review since I learned about it, what in like the 90s or whatever. But again, it's one of those things that's so common that you forget to use it, but yet it's so powerful. Talk a little bit about that. Talk about your experience with it because again, it's one of those simple things that that's almost becomes a necessity for individuals and teams who really value excellence to keep yeah, in I love mind. That.
1: I love that. If there's one tip in the book people use, that's the one that I would recommend after action review is you've been using it. You know, it's a real simple thing. It originated in the military and it's three questions after, after a mission, after an event, after a project, after a presentation, circle up with the team and ask three questions. What went well, what didn't go well, and what will we do differently next time? They're really simple questions. They're really kind of hard to dig into because they force, they have this sort of forcing function where you have to be um, vulnerable. You have to be self-critical and you have to be critical of others on your team. And they create kind of conversations that are really hard to have when when you realize, you know what? We kind of screwed that up and that was not good. That was not good. And here's why. And here's what we should do differently next time. But here's what went really well. And you're creating, you're doing a bunch of things at once. You're creating these vulnerability loops that strengthen relationship and improve trust. But you're also creating at the same time a shared mental model of the problems you're solving together. And you're realizing, oh wait, the hard part isn't this, it's that, or what I'm seeing isn't the same as what they're seeing. How We need to reconcile that. And you end up creating a group brain. And that's why it's it's so essential. And it's yet it still ends up being kind of hard to do for some people because it feels like it doesn't feel productive. Like we're pressing pause. We're not actually doing the work. We're talking about the work, but like everything else, that is the most productive investment you can make in your team because it's the time when you're, you're building the landscape, you're going to operate together. You're identifying where the mountain ranges are and where the smooth valleys are. And, and the next time you go through that investment will pay off. So it's, a, it's, it's one of those things that's just a small, it's a big, dumb question you're asking the team. And the more you do it, and the more you experience the slight pain of it, the stronger your team gets. It, and it, the analogy is exactly the same as like exercise in the body, right? And you want to get strong legs and strong arms, you lift weights and that hurts when you do it. It hurts, but, but the compensatory growth that happens because of the pain that's a sign that that growth is happening, and and trust works exactly the same way. And that the pain of the AAR is actually the feeling of growing as a team. So that's why it, that's why it's such a such a simple, powerful, easy to overlook, but really impactful practice.
0: So lastly, we talked in the beginning about building a model of excellence. All right, you're starting your company, you're building this model of excellence, and I've always been a big admirer of organizations that have culture books and. Obviously, you write about them, you've seen them. So, if you were going to develop a culture book, what advice would you have for your team on what to include in that culture book? What would it look like, and what would you want to have in it?
1: Yeah, what a cool question. You know, and people do their culture books and their culture decks. I, I guess I would. It would really, it would really, this will be, this will be probably a wildly unsatisfactory answer, but it would absolutely depend. I could see any variety of things working depending on the people, depending on the group and depending on where we were at that moment. Sometimes you want to capture kind of the the joyful interactions that everybody has all the time. Like that's what Zappos culture book looks Mm -hmm. like. Sometimes you want to capture these these principles, like IDEO's design, IDEO has a great culture book, they're a design firm, and, and they've got these beautiful principles about helpfulness and humility, and, and they do a little story about each of them, and they paint them on the walls, and they, they have these, the, the book is sort of these big sayings, and then these little stories. That can be perfectly appropriate, because they're, what are they doing? They're designing things together, and these principles help them interact. So I'm, I'm as a writer, I'm kind of drawn to that ideal model where you mm-hmm. sort of distill stuff into a few mantras and then tell a story about it. And it sort of gives people some, both a concrete mantra, but also some story meat on the bone that lets you, oh yeah, and here's that example of when we designed the, tr- the traffic stoplight and the way we did it was this and a little story that explains how, they embodied that principle. I think that ends up being a really powerful way because it it sort of functions like a compass. It's like, okay, that's what true north looks like. And this is what true north feels like. And for
0: like, for you personally, what do you, what do you do to keep your mind continuously curious about obviously talent and culture, and they're all kind of interconnected? Is it just the observation of, of, these types of organizations or the people that you're working with and certainly what you're reading and what goes, what goes into your brain?
1: I think you're looking for mysteries. I think that's the thing. Like, like there's a there's a part of me as a young journalist that I was always looking for the answers. And I've since, as I've, as I've gotten older, I've gotten more attuned to you shouldn't look for answers. You should look for the mysteries themselves. And you know, the mystery that started me on this culture thing was just the question of why do certain places feel different? You know, you walk into certain schools or a bakery or a locker room and the winning ones feel different. What's that made of? And and those sorts of questions, which end up being kind of these big dumb questions, like, how come this and not that? Why are they able to do that? They end up sending you down a road. So it's more like, I don't know. It's like you're, I, I saw an analogy recently where it was sort of like you're trying to track a, a big animal or something like that. Like you should see the tracks, right? There's the track in the mud and there's the broken stick. And so you, you sort of get into this state of trying to notice things and notice direction and notice what made that track. Why is it that way? And so that's sort of what it feels like. You're, you're trying to notice obvious things, that when you zoom the camera out maybe they're a little more mysterious than you thought
0: well you're gifted at what you do and i'm always grateful for your brain and for your thinking and everything that you do so thank you
1: thank you i will enjoy the conversation i look forward to our next one